Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today's episode deals with the idea of the use of force and doing so appropriately and effectively. Before we get into that, however, a few things to discuss. Uh, the first of which is within Warhammer 40k, of course, we just had this new update that dropped along with some points switches, and that's already starting to see a dramatic effect across the board. And will continue to do so because as of this recording, it has only just dropped a few days ago. And uh, I'm excited to see where, where things go with it. I was already beginning to design lists based on what I knew about the new rules so that it wouldn't catch me off guard. So I wouldn't be sitting there going, oh man, I really needed to spend more than six command points in the beginning of this to make this army effective. And now I'm, you know, I have to spend five or, or like one or two over that. So I was already kind of, I don't know trying to plan for that, and then very glad that the knight's points did not change at all. It's the exact same point values as they were uh, before the change. So in terms of what I'm running for my list, it stayed pretty pretty much the same, pretty simple. And what I'm doing right now seems to be very effective, which is three errants, and the rest are warglaves. And so we have melta on melta with some melta on top. And it's doing very well because this edition, uh, high AP, really seems to be the most the most uh, important thing. High AP, high damage. So even though I'm going up against lists that have four three up invulns, when the shots get through, they hurt. And I will always be pushing my opponent to that invuln, or at least I should be with that negative four on everything. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward. I've I've got a list that I've only tried out against Toto so far. I did very well. In fact, I scored higher than I have ever scored before. And part of that was, you know, luck of the draw, of course, who gets to go first. And part of it was, I feel very strong about this list. So uh, next episode, actually, I'm hoping to have Toto on, and we're going to do another one of those before-afters like we did with Soren. And, uh, you know, he, he probably has something new cooking for me. So we'll talk to Toto, the meta hunter, next time about such things. One more thing before we get into uh, our, our main story tonight, and that is, of course, on the Russian-Ukraine war. Russia continues to alienate itself, as of the time of this recording, by uh, doing humanitarian grievances would be the, the best way to describe it. Um, of course, hitting malls and other crowded areas with people, innocent people and children and all that does nothing for one's international reputation, international standing. So not only did they already have the world basically against them, it's becoming more and more severe. More and more things are being cut off. More exports are being denied. And it's, it's beginning to choke 
the economy of, of Russia to a, a, a massive degree. I don't know if we have any listeners in Russia, but I, re I really feel for y'all because of the actions of, of your leaders that are making it hard for you to live there. It is always a shame when one's leaders hijack one's country and bend it to their own will rather than the will of the people or the good of the people. I'm sure that the Russian people have no desire to be in this war for the most part. And and so this, it's, it's a tragedy. It's a human tragedy. And the Russians are facing an uphill battle every single way, even though their army began as the, of course, larger and better equipped army, that equipment equation is quick, is, is, is being altered by every artillery piece, by every air or surface to air missile, like everything that goes into the Ukraine, everything that will make them into a world-class power at the end of all this, because, you know, I have no doubt because of the effort that is going into it, that uh, NATO is going to force a certain response here. They already are, you know, they've got Finland and Sweden that are going to be joining, which are going to be more NATO bases, more troops uh, closer to the Russian border. Putin sees this as a threat. And so this escalation, as we know, can only lead to more escalation. That's the way that war works. And whoever tops it out first, and hopefully we won't be seeing a nuclear war out of this because that's the, that's the top. That's the top of our escalation. And we've only reached it twice. And it would be really nice if in human history, that's it. I don't think any of us, me speaking, you listening, would like to see anything resembling a nuclear war. But as of right now, we have another Cold War type situation where you have a proxy war taking place. And uh, it just so happens that instead of, you know, our troops directly in North Korea, it's the Russian troops directly in the Ukraine. So we're going to see how this plays out, of course. And, uh, you know, our, our hearts are with the Ukrainian people and uh, the, the refugees it has created. And we hope that y'all can, can find some peace. Um, but, you know, uh, that aside, I think it is time to get into our uh, main episode, which is on the use of force. When we speak, of the use of force, we are of course speaking of two things. We are speaking of the assembly of that force, the preparation of that force, and then the follow through of, of course, the use of it. But without the assembly, we can't have the actual force itself. All the wishes in the world will not accomplish a campaign. The forces need to be there to do so. And so these two things together are battle, our war in of themselves, who can do these two things? Because battle itself is usually what we look at, right? We see the two approaching sides. We see the, the drama that takes place, the, the luck, the brilliance that takes place between the, the interchange of the strategies and the tactics and the individuals involved. That is what we see. But what takes place before that is just as important, which is those forces being there and knowing how to be used by a commander that is skilled in doing so. So these two, th we're going to examine this. We're going to look into this assembly and the use of force. And two things go into the assembly. And we're talking about the forces themselves bringing together this overall mass, this army. And one of them is assembly of forces in space. And the other is the assembly of forces in time. 
assembly of forces in space is extremely straightforward. The best strategy for it? I bet you can guess. Always be very strong. Of course, first in the general sense, and then in the more specific decisive point sense, that local numeric superiority that we always speak of. And, and this makes sense. We discussed this in one of the previous episodes, where we want to bring as many forces to bear as we can that is not also ungainly. So being very strong isn't just having the largest army, it is having the best trained army, the best equipped army, the best fed and provisioned in other ways army. All of these things make an army strong. And that's what we're looking for. And we're trying to keep these forces concentrated. Remember that if we start to send out any divisions, it must be justified. It's got to be for a reason. It can't just be these crawls. A good example of how that goes wrong is when, you know, the United States Army split itself into several different divisions, several different columns when they were hunting the Sioux Nation. Custer's was the one that happened to find them, and they were overwhelmed and outnumbered. And if the overall forces had been there, if they had sent out smaller scouting, you know, they may have had a different situation there. But as it was, he bumbled into a, a very, very, very angry... <laughs> a group of people who were justifiably mad at him, and they done killed him uh, for many reasons. So uh, that that is important. We're trying to keep these forces concentrated because when they are, they've been assembled. If it's disparate, if our forces are all over the place, we take away that strength. There's nowhere better demonstrated, I think, than on a 40K table, where it is very, very tempting to spread our forces out across a wide front. And in terms of horde armies, Perhaps this is necessary. It's the only way that you can fit into your deployment zone. But for other armies, considering, like for instance mine, I've got eight models on the field, they may be large, but I'm trying to concentrate them in an area where I can make that effective. If I just spread them out, my opponent can take them out piecemeal, and just whittle me down in various areas, rather than all of my stuff hitting in one spot with a devastating blow. That is what we're talking about here is being able to concentrate all of that force into one space. Again, simple, but not easy, because the other factor we must consider in the assembly of forces is the assembly of those forces in time, making sure that the timing is right. And this is the trick. This is the real trick, whether this is a matter of wargaming on the tabletop or wargaming in a one-on-one -on -one or a group fight. Timing is everything. Having the right force in the right place at the right time, that's victory. That's victory right there. So to understand this, of course, we also have to understand that war, battle, is the shock of two opposing forces meeting. You have two different policies, two different aims, agendas, that are, can no longer be reconciled and have to be resolved through force. And that, of course, is where we're at when we meet on the board or on the field, is that these two opposing forces are hitting one another. And of course, both of us are usually just wanting to win. We're not trying to advance any sort of political or religious regime. We are not attempting to actually take resources from our opponent. It's just a game. But we still have this shock of the two forces, and it's still the fact that the momentum stays. So the stronger carries the momentum forward. And again, we're using strong in terms of not just the strength of numbers, but also just the strength of spirit, strength of everything. Once you get momentum going on our opponent, it continues going that way. Once our opponent gets the momentum gaining on us, it continues to go that way. So this, is, this must be understood when we're, we're looking for that timing element. 
is where's the momentum going? Are we dealing with it in terms of it coming towards us or leaving us? Because the timing is going to be different. The rules will be different based on that. And part of this timing, of course, is using those forces. They don't all need to hit all at the same time. Consider you know, my knights. They're too big. <laughs> They're too big to all hit the same spot at the whole time. I can't get everybody in, but I can kind of focus their efforts, you know, and it's, it's more staggered. You know, a lot of shooting and then the moving in, but not everybody's immediately at the same time. Other people are in the back line and then there's that second wave that comes in. And part of this is to hit and then hit again with refreshed troops. One of the examples that Clausewitz uses is, is mathematically speaking, if you have two forces that are equally disposed in terms of, you know, spirit and equipment, then if they hit one on, if you've got a thousand people on each side and they hit, boom. It's going to be kind of a toss-up, right? But one of the things he suggests is in some cases, you can stagger your engagement. So instead of hitting them with your full um, 1,000, you only send 500 against the full 1,000. Now, granted, that 500 will get battered. But, you know, statistically speaking and percentage-wise, they're going to do a huge hit to your opponent. 20%, let's say there's 20% casualties. 20% to 1,000 is larger, of course, than 20% to 500 which if we're being smart, we're not going to lose much more than that. So that force then withdraws and you bring in a new 500. And while they may not be as much as the 800 that remain on your opponent's side, those 800 are now tired. They're exhausted. Their supplies have been drained. Their resources have been drained. They're out of position, whatever the case may be. We're bringing in fresh bodies, fresh troops, fresh eyes into a situation. And in some cases, this is good, especially if you can, of course, preserve <laughs> the previous force and only keep your losses at like 20%, then it's very good. The unfortunate thing with something like this in the games we play is oftentimes the other team is, is very good. And so if we only send half of our force at them, then that force gets eaten and the second force comes in and they don't have time enough to be exhausted, right? I mean, it's not like we're fighting an all-day battle in which, you know, your, our troops have a time to get slogged down and lose their ammunition and everything. We're only fighting a couple minutes, a couple hours worth of a battle. And so making sure that we hit with our, th being as strong as we can, that's where I'm at. Again, in terms of actual field maneuvering, historical field maneuvering, he's probably right. He's probably right. But in, in terms of what we do, we don't have to worry about our little plastic models becoming fatigued. They don't. So I, I, I say hit them all at once with what we do. Now, when we were talking about being strong, remember that strong is not just numbers, that it is also something to do with spirit and training and equipment. Because if we do deploy too many forces into combat, it can be disadvantageous. As we saw before in one of our previous battles, when they were stretched out along this massive front, coordinating these various attacks, was difficult. When we have a massive front like that, when we have too many troops in too many places, that timing gets cut off and it becomes cumbersome and unable to, to move well. And so I understand that we're talking about competing ideas, right? We're talking about hitting everybody in the same place, but not too many, not dedicating too much. And again, this Clausewitz contradicts himself and therefore I contradict myself quite a bit. But what you have to understand is I think what he's trying to explain, there's so many nuances. There's so many rules and then so many ways that those rules then get broken. 
And it's something we have to try to keep up with as, as the readers. I'm, I'm trying real hard. So tactics, on the other hand, when we're looking at tactics, they can continue to make a use of forces in a more staggered way. We can hit over here and then hit over here and kind of use a chain of attacks to achieve something. Strategy only does it once. So we're looking at two different things, right? We're looking at strategy and tactics. So tactics, in terms of the way we're explaining this, is either 40K or other tabletop games like that, where you have the miniatures, or like something like Belagarth or other physical wargaming. Those are all tactics when it comes to this because we can do a continued use of force, you know, hit here and then have these forces circle around over here or use some sort of combo. Those things are available to us in tactics. Strategy here is saying, all right, I'm moving this army to here. And then again, as we've discussed, our strategy is using the various results of these combats in succession to achieve something. And so... For strategy, it's not a matter of the nuance. It doesn't have the nuance that tactics do in this particular case. It's more of a matter of this army goes here uh, because I'm sitting way far back. I'm not necessarily on the front lines because I'm the overall commander sort of thing. So there's, there's the difference. Again, we can use a bit more of a varied idea to achieve that strength when we're doing with tactics. But again, tactics is, is very important when it comes to, to being able to alter what that combat combat is, I guess. That seems self-explanatory, but a lot of this stuff does sometimes. And with this force, we have to make the most efficient use of it, not knowing necessarily when our next engagement is. And we maybe do, and this is a matter of not expending too much. You know, if we're going to be out there in the sun for a while and we're fighting and we know that we have a unit battle at the end of the, the day, going out and expending all of our energy early on means that we don't have an efficient use of force for later on. We, we know that there's an engagement later on, but we spent our force. You know, if we uh, dedicate too many f models to a particular fight on the tabletop and they're lost and then we don't have enough to continue the campaign. So the efficiency is huge, making sure that we're putting forth exactly as much as we need, but in an overwhelming way. Because after a success, that crisis then stops. And we have a chance to bring up fresh troops to make a difference. And for us, that crisis, of course, is the particular battle or the particular fight. We have a chance to go back and maybe remake our army if things aren't working correctly or get a different kit, glass of water, go eat some lunch, whatever we need to do. Because we have to remember that what influences all of this is, of course, also what influences morale. So we're talking about, of course, fatigue, exertion, um, privation. It influences all of this. And, and I mean, for us as well, not just in real war, but for us as well, we perform better when we are, you know, well-rested and when we have had plenty of food and drink, maybe not too much of it, but we are, we are good to go. Of course, this is doubly so when you were dealing with war during this particular time, when you had more people dying, not from being shot on the battlefield, but from like getting diseased, cholera, uh, toward the end of Clausewitz's life anyways. Infection was a huge one. You know, may, you may survive the bullet wound, but the infection afterwards was likely going to kill you or make you lose a leg. So with these things in mind, you know, we, we're dealing with this in terms of history. For us, it's a little bit more simple, but still that those elements remain. If we're trying to be a top player, if we're trying to be an elite player, we have to pay attention to these factors. And all used forces exhaust over time, making fresh forces important. For, that me that, for us, that means bringing a fresh body, a fresh mind to the field. 
because we've exhausted ourselves. In a particular game, you'll ex we'll, we'll exhaust a, like parts of ourselves, especially, gosh, if you go to a tournament and you're doing a couple of games in a day against top players, yeah, that exhausts. So making sure that we bring fresh forces, or for us, it's a fresh force of mind, a fresh force of will, perhaps, that's very important. It's very important for us to be able to perform at our, at our top level, obviously. And, and of course, the morale of that fresh force is influenced by what has occurred beforehand. You know, if we're coming off of a string of victories, when we go and rest, it's going to give us a certain sort of restfulness. And we're going to come back to the field, come back to the table, being influenced by those victories. But the same thing with losses. You know, if we've had a string of losses and then we have to go out and perform again, that is going to influence what we think as well. And allowances have to be made for this to make sure that we compensate for that. For instance, if we're going in and we are not feeling our best, taking risky moves, doing things that are outside of our normal technique, probably not smart. We probably want to stick to what we know, but if we're coming in, we're feeling hot, our enemy is on the back foot, maybe this is the time to make some bold moves. Maybe this is the time to play some risks. We have that coming in. But on the flip side of that, fresh forces coming in, having been influenced by victories, might also be cocky. Right? They might also be coming in uh, with an overinflated sense of what they can accomplish. So we have to make sure that we're not doing that. And the same thing with our defeats. We can't beat ourselves up with it. But we also can't come in uh, angry, on tilt, trying to, to overcompensate. So these things need to be considered when we're off field. How we're going to spend our energy recovering so that our fresh forces can be the most effective that we have. So that all of our forces available and destined for a single target can be deployed simultaneously. Everything we have can be brought forth and be effective. But you might be asking yourself, Clausewitz has advised the use of strategic reserves. Frederick used strategic reserves. Every good commander throughout the entirety of human history has had some form of strategic reserve. So if we're supposed to be bringing all of our forces to bear, what is the point of strategic reserves? Well, in terms of actual warfare in history, it is not a static force. We're not dealing with something that we're keeping back doing nothing. The strategic reserve serves one of two purposes. It either prolongs or renews combat, right? Or you can use it in case of an unforeseen event. You know, if we're, if we're sitting there and we're like, oh, there's a hole in the line, or there's an opportunity for a fight over here, or we need to press the fight just a little bit more, we can send the strategic reserves up to reinforce the combat that is occurring. But if somebody's going for a wide swing around, if we've got flankers that are coming, the strategic reserves are there to go and block them, maybe not overwhelm them, but at least keep them at bay until the main action can be accomplished. And so this is very important. It's not, and again, the difference between a strategic reserve and something that is idle is very, very, very important. Yeah, something that is idle is not useful. It's not going to get going as quickly. The strategic reserves are not sitting around on their butts thinking, oh, we're not going to be deployed, sitting there, you know, plucking the daisies. They got their equipment put away. They're all good. No, no. These forces are ready to go. They are ready to go at a moment's notice to be able to do what they need to do. And within Warhammer 40k, we have a specific rule about strategic reserves. You know, we can have things off board. 
Sometimes rules will allow for this, whether it's a drop pack rule or a teleportation rule or some such, or sometimes we can just take stuff and put it off field. But it has to be for a purpose. It can't just be, well, I've got this and it's a secret thing, but we have to understand that it's going to serve one of two purposes. It can either come in and prolong or renew combat in a particular area. You know, if, we, if I drop my Terminators in an area to reinforce a particular action or a particular movement, then that is the proper use of a strategic reserve. But if I also use it because my enemy is starting to come around you know, from the rear and is going to disrupt my battle plan, well, yeah, dropping some, some Terminators there, some Deathwing Terminators, boom, you know, that's another use of the strategic reserve. But we don't, we don't want to have one unless it is necessary, right? I, I've stopped using reserves almost entirely within 40k because this whole idea of economy of force, right? Bringing all of our force to bear at one time and not just letting them shoot us off the board and then shoot the other half of the board off. I see a lot of melee armies, like the Blood Angels, for instance, who suffer for this. You know, there's limited targets on the other side. So you pepper those, you take them out, and then by the time that the reinforcements arrive, you can deal with them specifically, not having to worry about the combination. So this takes some, some skill, this takes some, some finagling, and one has to make sure that the forces on the board are the defensible ones, that they're able to hold <laughs> the, the line. And within Belagarth, we have this too. Of course, we want to have most of our forces engaged in the line or the center of the flanks, but I've also seen people, myself included, who hang back and look for opportunities. You know, perhaps a hole in the line that can be exploited, or a part that needs to be reinforced, perhaps a flanker coming around that needs to be intercepted. You know, having a strategic reserve is important there too. But as I said, it's not an idle thing. You're not sitting there watching the clouds go by or having a chat with a friend. We're sitting there aware in the moment, observing where we can be the most useful because of course we're doing this based on the information available. Sometimes it's not going to be necessary. Sometimes it is. And sometimes we will have strategic reserves and sometimes we won't. But when we do have them, we have to use them effectively. And these are the ways to do so. Now, we've been talking a lot about economy of force. We've, we've, uh, there's been several different episodes where we've touched on this idea. And even though a lot about war seems to be chalked up to mathematics, at least in Clausewitz's mind, this particular factor, he says, doesn't have a rigid formula. We can't sit here, I can't sit here and say, well, you need this exact percentage of things in this exact way with this sort of spirit and this sort of equipment that there is no rigid formula for this. I can't tell you what is the most effective use of force, what, what capitalizes on this economy of force in every situation. It will be different in every single situation. But the more that we fight, the more that we engage in our wargaming, whether it be, again, the miniatures or sword play or airsoft or whatever, it becomes more intuitive. This knowledge of when to use and how much to use when it comes to force. And this, of course, again, comes with experience and it also comes with education. We can read back at the greats. It's one, of the, it's one of the big things we do on this show is encouraging reading back and educating oneself on how to use a force effectively on really drilling home points like local numeric superiority. Making sure, again, that we're, we've, we've got these other ideas in mind. I'm not trying to cap, uh, completely copy Frederick the Great. As we discovered with uh, his two contemporaries, 
or uh, Clausewitz's two contemporaries that tried to, and they got destroyed because everybody else had read Frederick the Great's book as well. We have to make sure that we are not doing them by rote, but using them as inspiration. I once used these battles to design various formations and various callings to a... Uh, the gladiators, when they first started, it was a very organized group. We did drill, we did all sorts of other um, activities to make sure that the group itself was, was what was getting trained. Perhaps not the individual, but the ability to fight as a group. And when we were able to recreate the situations, it was fantastic. But in terms of being able to think on the feet, act intuitively or act independently, it was woefully inadequate. And so after that, you know, another form of training kicked in. But because we did, weren't using our, our force correctly, and, 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 and for my part, I was not encouraging people to read a situation intuitively. I was trying to say that there was a rigid formula that could be followed, and I was wrong. I was wrong. And so we have to trust ourselves. We have to trust ourselves and make sure that we are using the right amount of force and that we do have no forces that are idle, which is you know, to be said that they're not being used and it's for no purpose. Because troops that are idle like this, they, they might as well be dead or neutralized in some way. They might as well not be counted as all, at all. And we're not bringing them forward and so we're not using our true economy of force. We don't want that. We don't want a unit on the board that, we, that was not worth its points. We don't want to have a time on the field where we don't pull our own weight. Whatever that weight may be, you know, sometimes we're capable of more and sometimes we're capable of less. But making sure that we give our all is so important in what we do. Especially considering that we just get up at the end of it. We don't have to worry about battlefield injuries, gangrene. Or, or trying to reassemble exhausted forces. These are not things that we necessarily have to worry about. And so making sure that we bring our 110% is important. Not hurting ourselves. Not hurting ourselves. Not overextending ourselves. But recognizing intuitively how much force we can bring to bear. And how much needs to be brought to bear. If we do want to look at something that is strictly mathematical though. Something to get very well ex explained. Geometrical elements. And these ones are, are pretty darn easy. What are the angles of attack in, in concerning line for line or stance to stance? What are the distances? What are the angles in terms of like how high we need to go or how low we need to go? What is the geometric element here? The interacting positions and the complementary angles that really go into combat and that allow us to get that local numeric superiority. That is a, a matter of geometrical element, making sure that we have angled everything into the right place and it fits correctly and able to support it. Again, it's not just the forces being there, they have to be able to be used and directed. And so part of that is geometry. And then we have zone control. Anybody who's familiar with sports, with basketball or football, recognizes the term zone control. We don't have to fight every individual Controlling a zone can be just as effective. We don't need to be shoulder to shoulder as long as we have a, z a zone of protection around each other. It's one of the big things that a newer player makes the mistake of is keeping too close to their allies and not recognizing that there is a bubble, about a sword length bubble around a person that they can control and that is obviously controlled. And so having a sword length or two between you and your next person over, unless there's a huge push. I mean, if you're dealing with like a bunch of numbers coming to bear, making sure that we pull ourselves back in 
to deal with that concentration is very important. Local numeric, you know. But if we're dealing with a more spread out, with a more broad issue, making sure that we have our picket line, as it were, our kind of skirmish line, that zone control can be just as effective. And with the geometry of it, making sure that we have those protections, that I'm within range of being able to attack anybody who attacks my buddy on the right. And that my buddy on the left is within range to protect me if I get attacked. And that depends on the people on the field. Again, some of this is intuitive, but that's the idea. The idea of the, using these positions and these complementary angles. We don't have to be everywhere at once. We just have to have the threat of being everywhere at once. And these geometrical factor elements, they, they are not, you know, the gospel in this particular case. They are not nearly as influential as other factors. They're not nearly as influential as economy of force or the assembly of these forces in the right places. They, it is not nearly as important as the forces concerning morale or training or any of that, but it is also important to take into consideration. And it is definitely a part of the idea of economy of force, which is making sure that we have our protections and our strategic reserves, but it's again, this balance, this kind of intuitive interplay, not rigid. Because of this, because it, like if we are using zone control, it gives us time to react. You know, it's not just a matter of one completely large force that is sucked in together. Because again, when we're talking about keeping our forces together, it's not shoulder to shoulder, chest to chest. You still have wings. We still have scouting troops that are moving out and around. It's not a matter of, again, being absolutely everywhere or being all in the same place, but a balance of the two and recognizing what that is. Again, study about it. You know, uh, listen to what we're reading here. Go out and make sure that you're reading your own stuff because through that education, combining that with our experience is the way that we get better, faster. Listening to those who came before and then figuring out how to do it better. The other two things here that Clausewitz discussed are the idea of suspension of, of hostilities, of tension and rest. Within a, uh, the, the matter, of course, of historic war, the suspension of hostilities is necessary. You can't just go and go and go and go and go and go because people get tired. Ammunition runs out. Night comes. You know, there's, there's many different reasons for the suspension of hostilities, but we have to use it to our advantage. Just like we have to use to our advantage the time between fighting or the time between a, a match to make sure that our forces are refreshed and doing everything we can to make sure we're coming back onto the field just about as good as we can. And, and using the suspension of, of hostilities, not as a suspension of our effort. Remember, as we said, that idle forces might as well be dead. Idle forces may as well not exist in the first place. And this is still very much true when we deal with any sort of suspension of hostilities as well. If we are too idle, and we are not preparing for our next fight, then we are not use, making the best use of that time. We are not going to be making the best use of our force. Now, again, we're talking people who want to do elite level stuff. If you're going to an event and you are really trying to impress somebody, or if you're going to a tournament and really trying to win, then we're trying to perform at this level. Most of the time when we are going to suspend any of these activities, it's going to be a time to go and spend time with our friends. Enjoy one another's company, enjoy good food and good drink. Maybe stay up a little bit too late. 
It's not necessarily, okay, we're going to go, we're going to eat a super healthy meal. We're going to lay down at the exact right time, get up, do a pre-workout. Like people can do that. That's, that's a very effective way of, of this suspension of hostilities. But if we really want to be performing at top experience, this is kind of what's called for because there's this interplay, right? Between tension and rest. And that exists like on and off the field. And it exists between two players because we can't just be tense all the time. It will wear us out. Our muscles fatigue. If we're on the field and we never are anything but tense, we are actually going to have far less endurance than somebody who knows when to rest. When there is no immediate threat, but we're still engaged in some sort of strategic activity, that's a time to just sort of let one's shoulders relax. Let your weapons drop, perhaps, for a little bit. Watch the archers, obviously. But make sure that a rest, even a mini rest, occurs between tensions. And in this way, between this idea of assembling our forces in the right time and space, and making sure these forces are used in the most economic way, remembering that they don't all need to be brought to bear in the exact same location at the exact same time, but there needs to be a plan to get them there to contribute in this way, whether that is through the use of strategic reserves or a zone defense. Our numbers need to work for us in the field. Now we are going to move on to an interview with one of my absolute favorite people, a graduate of the Gladiator School and a long, long time friend of mine, Sir Zulu. talk with us about the uh, assembly and proper use of force in the field is an old friend of mine and uh, a, a previous gladiator and a Stygian who has gone all over the place and achieved all sorts of things, uh, uh, my pal Zulu. Zulu, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to be here. Well, I, I like, I, I know I did a little spoiler right there, but uh, you want to tell the listeners about kind of your, your pedigree here? Um, well, I started here in Stygia in the far off year of 2005. <laughs> yep. 17 years ago. Um, I was here for, I believe nine years mm -hmm. and then I moved down to, uh, the realm of wrath in Boise, Idaho. I was there for a year and then I moved from there to the realm of Wolfpack in Bloomington, Illinois. I was there for a total of a year, and then I moved to the realm of Numenor in Champaign. I was there for four years, actually. And then from there, I moved from uh, Illinois to Ohio, where I've settled in Avalon. and been there for a couple of years now. Well, as with Desi last episode, that seems like uh, a very valuable experience, be able to travel, especially that large geographic area from, you know, Montana down to the Southwest, across to the, to the Midwest. I, I imagine there's a lot of variety in the techniques that you were able to study. There really is. Um, everywhere I went, it seemed to be like a jump up in skill level, just everywhere. Like when I first went to Idaho, I was like, oh man, there's so many fighters here. They all have, a you know, higher average skill set so everywhere i went it became more and more of a challenge almost and even you know out in ohio right now like i'm still getting 
I still get my butt kicked all the time. Right. So. That's it's nice to be places that challenge us, though, right? It is. That's really how we learn the best. I agree. But in terms of unit, you've had a bit of a, a little bit of a career there as well. Yeah, I was first sashed in the Brotherhood in 2013 at Chaos Wars. Um, and honestly, everywhere I've moved has been because of the Brotherhood. Uh, when I moved to Idaho, I was living with Raziel, who's a member of the unit. He's actually a chaplain in the unit. Uh, lived with him. When I moved to Wolfpack, I was living with Wraith, who used to be a lieutenant in the unit. Even when I moved to Champaign in Numenor, I was living with Piper and Gallon. And even going out to Ohio, it was because of Brotherhood, and it's because we had family there. Nice. Well, and that, that to be able to be a part of something that is still there when you move to another place. Like, I, I've been a part of units, for instance, the Forsaken, largely based out of the Southwest. When I first moved to Tennessee... There were no Forsaken there, obviously. There was nobody even heard of the Forsaken over there. In fact, the fact that I wore uh, black and red all the time, they kept mistaking me for EBF, which was not something that EBF took kindly to. But I was like, this is Forsaken colors, I swear. And there's, you know, there's units over there that nobody's heard of in the West, like uh, Ravnus, for instance. When I came back and was talking about Ravnus, everybody out here was like, Ravnus, what is Ravnus? Like this massive unit in the southeast that, you know, it, it just doesn't get spoken of over here because they don't come over here. But the ability to go, you know, I'm going to move from this place, this widely geographic, different place, over to another one, and still be a part of the same organization. That's pretty cool. It really is, and it it just goes back to the history of the Brotherhood. Like the unit was established in 1991, so, um, you know, just over the years we've spread out all over the place, whether that be picking up new people in different locations or someone happened to move for whatever reason. You know, they wanted to, they had to for work, and people ended up spreading out. And it actually helps spread the unit. For sure. And and those numbers, like I was talking about last uh, last week, the the numbers there can be hard to bring to bear because you have a lot of active members but it's hard like to get everybody from like the east for instance to come to a western event or vice versa the logistics of that are kind of crazy it, it really is um and it comes down to just how much planning we put into things um on the surface sometimes it th seems like we're just shooting from the seat of our pants but really behind the scenes there's been a ton of planning that goes on um, talking about who's coming from where, when people are going to be arriving, what are they going to need when they get there, uh, things of that nature. Like we all, like we plan it out as far out in advance as we can. Well, that sounds, for one thing, exactly the opposite of what my unit does, which is just kind of wing it and then have things come together perfectly, knock on wood. Um, but what you're talking about is, of course, the assembly of forces in time, making sure that everything that's going to be committed to a field is able to get there um, and how it's going to be managed when it gets there. So the planning that goes in, and again, like the uh, Dark Angels, there's only ever been 40 of us. I'm pretty sure we're a very small unit, whereas like trying to organize something the size of the Brotherhood is it's a little bit different. It, it really is. And it, it again, it all comes down to the communication 
um, how much we communicate and plan ahead of time. Um, you know, let's say I'm traveling across country and I'm not going to have any gear to use. Well, I can talk with fighters in the area, you know, fellow brothers in the area uh, that I know are going to be there and be like, hey, can anyone bring something like this out for me to use? You know, like um, come to this event, I won't have a tent. Can I borrow one? Mm-hmm. Chances are you're going to have at least half a dozen people that are like, yeah, I've, I've got something you can use. And just from everyone kind of coming together and the teamwork of it all, we'll get you taken care of. Again, awesome framework. Absolutely uh, the support there. The ability, like I said, to be able to move to another place and have that security. Um, it's definitely a strength. Definitely a strength of, of what y'all have going on. But when you are on the field, when you have been assembled, uh, the, the proper the, the time... One of the things we had talked about in the episode was strategic reserve. And obviously, as we had said, unless you've got like a B team sitting off field to be like, all right, you know, we're, we're bringing off number 12, putting out number 67 or whatever the case may be. That's not quite the same thing. But there is also something to be said for preserving those forces. So even though you are often able to bring numbers to bear on the field, the tendency to to not be able to preserve that force to not maintain the economy is fairly common all across the field like you see units do it all the time where they just completely wear down their strength by going against this unit or that unit and by the time they get to a real fight they don't have the ability to do so anymore they've they've bled that strength away the brotherhood often survive until the end of the match how how do you preserve your economy of force so one thing that i've definitely noticed over the years when we tend to go and engage. Um, even though we've got everyone up there fighting, doing their best, like me, for example, I'll get up there sometimes, I'll look all, you know, scary with my red, I'll throw a few shots, but really I just kind of stand there and look scary. Mm-hmm. And then the next fight comes along and let's say Forrest is there, Forrest will hardly swing and just kind of look scary while I'm sitting there hammering away shots. Mm-hmm. It's nothing that we really plan for is just that's kind of how things work out and what about committing those forces because there maybe there's going to be different layers of threat you know there may be two fighters off to the side now they're two newer fighters i'm assuming that there's going to be a, a, a different proportion of people dispatched than if you've got two more experienced vets sitting over yonder right like we're not going to take in and you know if we manage to field like 30 people we're not going to take all 30 people and go a attack these two people who barely know what they're doing you know we'll look over and be like hey you two go take care of them and most of us will just take our attention entirely off that and trust that our brothers can handle it and if they can't they'll let us know somehow well, that communication that is so important especially when you're dealing with a larger group uh you know a group my size we don't have to communicate verbally all that much on the field. We can see what the other people are doing easily enough and kind of redistribute our strength, relocate, retreat, whatever you want to say. Um, but again, like with the force, the size of what you normally feel, and I'm not, I'm discounting this last Beltane, where again, like there were less brotherhood on the field than there were, I mean, definitely EBF. They outnumbered the rest of us massively. So again, the number's kind of weird, <laughs> but um, that's that's also abnormal. Usually the Brotherhood, if there's going to be the three triad branches there, are the more numerous thereof. Um, 
Though I suppose when you're talking about strategic reserves, you could also be speaking about some of the people you're bringing in to be fresh arms, right? Um, you mean like bringing in newer folks into the unit, like yeah. pledges? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, like if someone goes to retire, um, someone like, let's say Flying, for example, she's an archer for us. Um, when she goes to retire or it seems like she's, you know, about to retire, you know, we've all seen it a few times when it's kind of obviously, you know, a fighter stepping back, they might retire soon, you know, who knows what might happen. We'll start looking for new blood to bring in to kind of fill those shoes so that even if they do stick around, it's like, well, now we have two archers instead of one. Oh, no. Yeah, like, we didn't lose out on that. And then if, for example, Flying does retire, we've already got someone else there who can kind of help fill those shoes. For sure. Which is uh, efficient <laughs> in a lot of ways. And it maintains those numbers, too, because it's not... It's not as effective if everybody did the same thing. If everybody in the Brotherhood was a sword and border, right? It'd be certain, good against certain armies, not good against other certain armies. But the fact that there can be diversity and that that diversity is maintained, that's important. It, it is. It is because we need, you know, archers like, you know, Desi and Feline out there to help take out the pole arms. So someone like me swinging a red can get in there and really do some serious work. For sure. Sure. And, and of course, one of the things we're talking about with the diversity of arms is also how to handle things at these different geometrical angles, right? If we're, you want to be effective at range, at archer range, right? And that's the reason why if you have a feline stepping down, you want to bring in a desi. But you also have that medium range, uh, you know, pole arms, and then the close range. And at each of these, of course, you've, you've got different considerations, right? And, and who you've got on the field changes how you're going to respond. So I guess from your own personal experience, just to kind of do uh, uh, mental exercises here, if you're dealing with a crew that is heavy on archers and you are not, what do you want to do to adjust these geometrics to your advantage? Honestly, I'd probably pull more of our, our shield men up. You know, we're going up against a lot of archers. We're going to need people to block those arrows. You know, I'm not, we're not going to take an entire group of red fighters and eh, go take care of those archers. Like, that's a bad idea. They've got no protection. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, bring up some people who can provide that protection so that I can hide behind it all <laughs> till we get to my effective range. Right. And it's, it's all about that, which is, you know, adjusting it to make sure that we are in our effective ranges. And you as a, as a red fighter, which is to say a larger shield breaking sword, uh, your effective range is going to be different than, of course, say, a archer. Now, where do you find your most effective range is? Some fighters like that, that more middle range when they're using a red, some like the close. What do you prefer? Lately, I've been playing around with being that more to, like, mid to long range, like, trying to strike more with, like, probably the last, like, six inches of my sword. So, like, I'm full extension, just barely able to get you with the very end of it. And it's all about trying to keep people at that range you know if they get too close to me i will get tied up in whatever they've got and i can't i can't fight as well so i'm going to try and keep them at that range if i start swinging at my max range when they start to close i've still got room to play with sure well that makes sense 
And that economy of force definitely comes in there too. It's not just a matter of the forces that we have at play, but it's also our force, our personal force and where we can can use it especially like where we're better at it. For instance, if you are most effective at that mid range kind of idea, then trying to expend your energy on a super close range match isn't going to put you in a position to fully utilize the situation if you can. You know, if you've, if you've wasted all of your strength doing something that's not necessarily what your style is designed to do, then when you're called upon to do that medium range stuff, uh, that economy, that, that momentum might not be there, right? Right. I, I feel the same way like anytime I line up across from a spear. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got people on either side of me who can help out, but a sp- spears and archers are definitely like my biggest weakness. Um, I mean, they'll just turn me into a pincushion, you know. I can't get close enough to a spear to do much. So lining up across from that on the field is just not a good idea. Right. I spend my entire time staring at that spear, trying not to get hit by it. I can't do anything. So I'm going to hang back, see where everyone goes on the field, find the pockets where there's not that many archers or spears, hopefully, and go for something like that. Because that's where I know I'm most effective. Sure. And I mean, that's that's a smart thing to do. Knowing your role, knowing how you um, belong on the field and where you belong in the unit. Now, kind of cycling back to when we were talking about the BOF being able to be one of the last people on the field fairly consistently. Obviously, this isn't just a matter of hanging back, but there is absolutely that element too, like keeping that that rest, let's say, the tension before we're able to go in and do something. So when, when you're looking for the, because you've been in the BOF for a while, when your team is looking for the opportunity, when you want to move in and strike, what sort of circumstances would you be looking at being like, okay, now is when we move? A lot of the times it's, it, it definitely won't be when Leon is first called, obviously. Like if we just like pick a direction, like just charge, we're not going to last very long. Right. You know, even if we don't just bowl over whoever we're going after, everyone else is going to follow up from behind and take us out. Um, a lot of it is really like, you know, Hey, who's, you know, identifying who's going to be the biggest threat on the field, who might be gunning for us. And then intimidating some of the smaller groups into moving into the larger groups. Cause that way, yeah, the smaller group probably isn't going to win, but they, you know, probably did enough damage to the bigger group that it's not going to be as big of a problem for us anymore. So it's not just about, like, using our own brute strength, but getting others to do some of the work for us. Sure. I mean, why why do it all yourself when you can, you know, just kind of be a presence and force other people into uh, other folks and kind of manipulate the field in that way? Yeah. What if you're dealing with, like, a just kind of a one-on-one situation where you've got one side versus one side, one, versus, one unit versus one unit, Um, When you're looking for those opportunities and you don't have the ability to use other units as a distraction, what, what are the, the, you see it, you seize upon it, and then you, you kind of capitalize on it. What are the, what are you looking for? Personally, what I like to look for is like if an archer takes down like a, a a spear or another archer, or uh, maybe our spearman or red, like they put a hole in the line 
either by killing one or two people, taking out a shield or two, even if the other side, they're like trying to shuffle some people in to fill that gap, there's enough of an interruption there that we could either push entirely through that hole or we could take out several more fighters and turn it into a domino effect that they can't recover from. By the time they get the people up there to replace the people that were taken out, well, there's now a bigger hole and you're in the middle of it. Sure. And to capitalize upon this is kind of a surprise in a lot of ways to our opponent. And when we're dealing with any sort of economy of force, surprises are huge because the attrition, just the grind at one another, as you'd said, like if you start off the battle and you're just immediately going, like commit all your forces into it, well, then all your force is going to be exhausted around the same time. And unless we can guarantee just like a big overall victory. So let's say we we outnumber the, the enemy three to one. Right. And so we're sitting there being like, okay, if we hit them all at once with all of our force, they cannot defend against us. In that case, yeah, using all of the forces we have, perfectly acceptable. But when we're dealing with something that we need longevity for, preserving ourselves, making sure that we're not just squandering our resources, which are our people, important. Yep. And we we definitely do a good job of like spreading out who takes care of what. You know, like, you know, they're not going to send Joe Mick to take on Joe New Guy out there. Right. You know, we might send like one or two people or we might just tell them like, hey, leave us alone. Most of the time they listen. What you're talking about in a lot of ways sounds like it requires quite a bit of discipline in order to pull off, not to have people like randomly break ranks and run at the enemy uh, in, in reckless fashion or to allow themselves to be peeled off and kind of wolf-packed away at, that sort of discipline is not common in a lot of units. How does the Brotherhood maintain that sort of discipline? It, it all comes back to the communication of it all. Um, if we catch anyone in our unit starting to do that, we'll yell at them, be like, hey, you're getting singled out. They're peeling you off. Get back here. Um, and we start doing that from the moment we pick you up as a pledge. A uh, few months ago at Olympics, uh, we had a had a new pledge that we just picked up, and you know we're rolling up on side as a group, and they're starting to you know get a little frisky and getting out there in front of the rest of the group, and we have to remind them like, hey, get back here! You're getting singled out, and you're turning this from a five on three to a one on three. Right? Don't know why you're doing that. Those odds are not in your favor. Mm-hmm. Get back here with us. Right. So you're, you're making sure that from day one, they understand what, the, what the, the call is, what the score is, right? Being like, okay, this is the way we do things. And you're going to get the lash <laughs> unless you do the way that they kind of integrate. You know, one of the things we've talked about before in the show is the idea of assimilating into the system of what you're a part. And that's not a bad thing. A lot of times, especially if you're an edgy teenager, mm-hmm. You're like, oh, assimilation, bad. But when we're talking about something like the Brotherhood, right, where there's that need to be cohesive, where there's that need to, to be responsive to the communication and kind of move with the rest of the group, then that's, that's important. Like this assimilation into that idea and being like, it's assuming one's will kind of to the will of the entire group. Right, right. And it, it's not so much like, we got to take this young mind and torment it to what we think, you know, twist it around. No, it's, it's all about teamwork. That is our big focus is teamwork. 
And if we're not out there working as a team, then what's the point of that? <laughs> Why call oneself a team? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, if we work together, we're far stronger than if we are apart. Mm-hmm. Now, by ourselves, we are pretty strong fighters, but together, we're better. Any sorts of drills that you do as a, because again, uh, um, you know, last episode I had spoken with Desi about the idea of trying to bring all these different styles together. And, and we had spoken a little bit about how that's done, but are there any specific drills or, or methods that you use to make sure that people are kind of gelling in that matter? Because again, I imagine that the folks from Wrath fight a little bit different than the folks from Avalon. They do. Um, and there are some drills that we do. Um, I really don't think I'm at liberty to talk to them about them at length. Sure. But there are some drills that we do, whether it be at an event when there's a decent amount of us and it's like, hey, it's been a while since we've done this. Let's, you know, get up and give it a shot. Um, or if it's just randomly at a practice, like, hey, it's mostly just brotherhood. Like, maybe we should work on some stuff here. And we just take some time out of practice to, you know, work on some stuff and figure out, like, how we can work together better as a team. You know, like if if I'm working with Forrest and he goes to step forward, how am I going to know what he's doing to keep up with that? Mm-hmm. Because if he steps too far forward, he gets singled out. It's easier to kill him, and I don't have as much reach. So we'll practice things to, to figure that out. You know, like what kind of tells does he have when he's about to move up or if he needs to move back? And we'll practice that so like I can pick up on it better and keep up with him on the line. Sure. When it sounds like a lot of this is an actual like active process, because like I, I have a similar familiarity with folks, but it's like something that I've learned over time passively. Like if, you know, thumb, for instance, thumbs and turkey feathers and I are all fighting together because we spent so much time fighting together in the DGMA and so much time fighting together in the like fighter house that we had, we're able to intuit what the other people are going to do. That's a passive process. That's something that's come about after years of living together and fighting together and all that. What it sounds like to me, what y'all are doing is active. You know, you're actively coming together. You're actively saying, let's work on, on kind of reading each other's tells and making sure that we know how to work most effectively and, and kind of trying to take what would normally be a kind of passive again process and say, this is what we're doing. Yes. Yes. That is, that is a very good way of putting it. What's well, it's smart. It's smart. It, it, you know, you're taking, you know, five years worth of fam- like familiarity, just kind of getting it and boiling it down into these smaller sessions, which especially if you're dealing with people who don't fight each other very often, again, like let's use Wrath and Avalon as a example, you know, they both show up at Spring Wars together and you've got not a whole lot of time to make sure that they are clicking that they are vibing. And so it's, I, I don't know, I don't think it would work as well to be like, all right, we're just going to hit the field and hope for the best guys. But uh, that's smart. But it, that also requires effort. You know, you're, you're taking time out of your day, out of your event to drill in this way. And that takes a certain type of fighter. Yeah, there's a lot of dedication in the Brotherhood. Um, and to, to me, it's really... It's not a it's not a big deal. Some people might be like, "Oh, I can't do that with a unit." To me, it's really not that big a deal. Right. Like we take a little bit of time out of it to make sure that like we're all better fighters. Sure. And it's not just like, "Hey, we're doing this so that we all know how to work together." We're actively teaching each other how to be better fighters. 
Like, so even if I'm out there by myself without any of my brothers, I can do a better job of holding my own and representing the black and gray. Sure. You know, uh, shining even when you're on your own, shining with the crew and shining on one's own because of what we've learned from our people. Because that's always nice too. Like you say, when you're out there representing and you say, you know what, you can look at me and, and see a product of kind of the system, the system I've assimilated into and see the effect of it. That's nice because, again, you're drawing from, you know, your pars and your Joe Mix and your Pipers and all those different ideas and all those different strengths being pooled into one large well to draw from. It, it is really great, all the people that we have to, to get all sorts of information from. You know, we've got probably over 100 years of experience between everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Easily. I mean, easily with the number of people, like even five people in there with, with 20 years experience, like hell, you and I sitting in this room are middle-aged in terms of our fighting career. Yeah. I don't like to think about it. <laughs> we were at dinner the other night and we heard stuff that was edgy when we were in high school being played as classic rock. Oh, yeah. But again, that's also a matter of the economy of force, right? The older we get the more we have to conserve what kind of energy we're putting forth, right? We're not young bucks anymore. We're not going and being like, all right, I can survive off of saltines, uh, Gatorade, and adrenaline. And I'm going to do that for this weekend. And you did. You know, I did in my late teens. You know? Yeah. It was called the event diet. And go there and survive off of a little bit of fast food and beef jerky. Lose five pounds, it's fine. Yeah. Oh, it's great. <laughs> but now, of course, we're getting older. We're getting a bit more... Um, conservative with what we do with our bodies and our energy so i mean this becomes even more important and having those that technique that you picked up kind of traveling around is going to become more and more and more important as it becomes technique that we rely on yeah yeah i definitely can't just fight all day like i used to like i really got to be careful with what kind of shots i throw um i'm not going to sit there and throw a million shots that don't really do much of anything you know i'm going to pick my shots more carefully because like, well, I'm going to be tired no matter what. I'd rather like to get through the day. Sure. So that we can get to the rest portion of the tension and rest, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, my man, we are out of time, but I, I very much appreciate you coming on the show. And like I, I said to Desi, taking time out of your vacation to, to be here and, and chat with me about some old dusty concepts. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great being here. Well, I look forward to seeing you the next time you're out. Uh, as for the rest of us, we're going to progress on to the next installment of the French Revolutionary Wars. normally start talking about whatever section of the French Revolutionary Wars we were at, uh, which were those two battles I had spoken of previously. The summer, however, has started <laughs> to get away from me. Of course, we've got uh, travel plans, meeting up with friends and family from all over the place. And so um, in lieu of that and wanting to do a service, uh, to do justice to both you, the listeners, and our friends and family who we're going to be meeting with, I'm going to be cutting out this third, third section for at least, you know, this and the next couple of episodes. 
just so that we can kind of focus up on the actual material itself and not have to um, either have me doing a subpar job getting the information together for y'all or upsetting, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, various family members because we're not paying attention to them. So again, I apologize for the inconvenience here. We always enjoy having your listeners and uh, enjoying what we're doing out here. So um, that will resume here toward the end of August. But until then, uh, I hope that you continue to enjoy your summer and find time to enjoy your hobbies as well. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.